All right, guys, this is Scott. Welcome to the Ardella Training Podcast, your strength and performance podcast. This is episode number 198. Now, I think you're really going to enjoy this week's session and get a lot out of it. This week, my guest is Katie Bowman. Katie is a true movement scientist, biomechanist, and human movement expert. And I am extremely excited to have her join the show and bring you this great session. Now, I've been wanting to have Katie on the show for some time, and this session is amazing. She is really a brilliant person, and we only scratch the surface with my questions here, but this is awesome content. Now, in this session, Katie discusses her passion and unique approach to improving health and performance through natural movement. She'll explain how and why her approach goes way beyond just exercise and the time that we spend in the gym. Katie is the author of eight books, including her latest work, Movement Matters, and her groundbreaking book, Move Your DNA. I have both of these and other books of hers, and I'm a big fan of her work. Now, this session is fantastic, and it's loaded with pure content, but it may require a couple of listen-throughs to really understand the context of her insights, so keep that in mind. Before we get into the show, just a couple of quick things, and then we're going to get into the interview session. I put together a quick survey, and I'll have a link to that survey in the show notes for this episode. This survey will greatly help me to create more of what you really want and what you need. And it will only take a couple of minutes of your time, and I'd greatly, greatly appreciate if you could do this. The feedback so far has been great. So go to ardellatraining.com forward slash RT198, and you'll see the link in the show notes for this episode. Also, you may have noticed that there was no article posted this week. I've been posting articles every Monday, but this week I am working on some new comprehensive articles right now, and I didn't want to rush the current piece that I'm working on. So stay tuned for that, and I'll have some great new content coming your way very soon, and uh, this is a really comprehensive article that I think will be very valuable. As a reminder, if you have a question for me or for the show, guest suggestions, anything at all, go to the community page at ardellatraining.com forward slash ask and post your comment or question there. Again, ardellatraining.com forward slash ask. Okay, guys, let's jump into the show this week. Again, you'll find the show notes at ardellatraining.com forward slash RT198. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the interview with Katie Bowman. Today, multi-book author, biomechanist, and movement expert Katie Bowman joins the show to dig into her innovative approach, philosophy, and passion to restore and improve human movement. Katie, thank you so much for being here on the show, and I'm very honored to have you because we talk about movement all the time here on the podcast, and I love your approach and philosophy. Well, I appreciate you having me, Scott. <clears throat> you got it. So let's just uh, get right into the questions and the first question I have for you is why? So why are you so passionate about <laughs> human movement and biomechanics? Oh man, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't know why I would say if I had to speculate it, you know, I remember, I probably told this story a lot, but I remember being fascinated, um, by the tin man in wizard of Oz 
that that's like um you know how sometimes they'll talk about you know kids who are famous singers now singing into a micro you know into their hairbrush or whatever but i i remember being captivated uh seeing his hinges his you know in the tin man costume of wizard of oz his hinges are on the outside no one had ever really talked about bodies in my house i grew up in in probably what i would say a low movement uh culture house and so the oil he's adding oil to his elbows and it made that squeaky noise and i i remember thinking about that going oh look at that that's a oh that's a hinge on the outside and you know that that's <laughs> yeah. a big piece and then um i think maybe the fact that i did come from a a very sedentary family um not the not the entire family but the kind of the portion um of the people that I was around most were not movers. And I think I found, I discovered movement later on and, and maybe the juxtaposition of those two things, or maybe it's a way of like seeking my solution to, I didn't want to be sedentary once I became aware that there were other options and I was just fascinated with sedentarism. So it could, it could be those two things maybe combined. So, okay. So I'm going to scrap some of the other questions I had for you right now and just to ask you about the sedentary uh, component that you just talked about. I wonder if you could maybe share or discuss maybe a problem that, that you had yourself as far as a, a movement problem or a problem as a result of, of being sedentary and what you did to address that early on. Well, it's interesting because I, I did stop being sedentary around my 17th year. So I, I was never sedentary as an adult. Um, but, you know, as we'll talk about in a, you know, in a little bit, probably the difference between, you know, I, I delineate between, I, I would say that a movement science or exercise science has delineated between exercisers and non-exercisers. And if you're an exerciser, you're not sedentary. Um, and if you're not an exerciser, you are. But where I would say that there was this kind of other category, and it's now coming out in research too, where you can have athletes or people who do exercise regularly, but who are sedentary the rest of the time, very similar in um, minutes of their lifetime as someone who doesn't exercise. So um, one of the, I think some of the issues that I was having was coming more from being an exerciser surrounded by sedentarism more so than just being sedentary, you know, cause I, I mean, I don't know when I was, you know, 15 or 16 or 17, I really didn't have too many health issues. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a time where we still played outside, you know, the bulk of the time. And, you know, there weren't any computers when I was a kid and, and no one had a cell phone. So I was still, even though I wasn't an exerciser, I was a bookworm, but I still was sent outside quite a bit more than, you know, maybe the kids of, of today. But the issues that I had were probably more in my 20s when I was trying to exercise a lot and sit down the rest of the time. There were some, like I had a knee problem. I threw my back out uh, a little bit as kind of a young exercise, but otherwise sedentary person. Those are, those are my musculoskeletal issues, I would say. What do you consider yourself right now? I mean, are you an exerciser? Are you a mover? How do you, what, what's your primary description of, of you? I self-identify as a mover rather than an exerciser. And I have spent a lot of time 
being an exerciser, being a chronic exerciser, um, you know, we're upwards of four to five hours a day, you know, um, of, of, of high intensity, you know, type exercise, but still being sedentary the rest of the time, like sloth <laughs> the yeah. rest of the time. Cause I was recovering, yeah. right. I was so exhausted. It was like, if I wasn't running, if I wasn't, um, lifting, I was, you know, prone, <laughs> you know, with the TV yeah. on as, because I could, I physically couldn't move anymore. But, um, over the last, I've been self-experimenting with movement versus exercise, keeping in mind that I still teach a couple of, um, uh, classes in movement assessment that are, that are what I would consider exercise, but it's, it's not the way that I identify, I identify, um, I've tried to replace, all of the hours that I spent exercising, right? So the definition of exercising would be when you're doing it, that bout of movement specifically to reap the physical benefits of that bout or that mode, that selective, you know, um, duration. Like you've set some parameters around what you're about to do for the physical benefit. I've replaced that same bulk of time, four to six hours a day, only now I move, um, with the intention of getting something else done. So non-exercise movement is when you're engaging in activities that may look exactly the same as when you're exercising, but something else is happening. Some other benefit that's not exercise is also happening. So instead of, you know, trying to slog five mile walk every day, um, I will make sure that that five mile walk is walking to three or four locations where I'm getting my groceries. I'm delivering or dropping something off. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up a kid from school, meaning that something else has happened during that time that I got to check other things off in my life besides just the exercise. So I don't really think of myself as an exercise any longer now. Do you have a car, Katie? Or do you try I do. to do you, I do. But do you, yeah. you try to walk everywhere as much I as have possible? A, I have a car, but I, <laughs> I very rarely use it. So you talked about, uh, or you mentioned, I should say, you mentioned movement assessment or assessing movement. How do you do that? What is your approach to that? Well, it's 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 very large, but on the on the beginning level, I think of everything like you know when we talk about movement. I don't think we talk about um, if we talk about cardio, right? If you were a trainer and you you had a client who came to you or your therapist, and someone comes to you and says, "I want to run a marathon," which a lot of trainers have had someone come to them and say, "I just have this goal of." running a marathon. And it's like, great, well, you are currently, you know, a couch potato. So you you create a program that is over a long period of time to get them to that goal. And you're considering their the current state of their body, the current setup of their life, maybe how many minutes they're allotting to exercise and, and all you're thinking of all the hurdles. So we don't tend to always though think about um this idea of what I call alignment, the idea that there's a a certain amount and a type and a frequency and a distribution of movement that's required for the body um, and set that up in the same way where there's this transition. How do you transition an otherwise sedentary body, even if you're an exerciser, to being a body that's capable of a movement-rich life? And there's many tiers over which to transition, some of them physical some of them, just in terms of organizing how you execute your life on a day-to-day basis, including periods of time that you would not usually think are about your movement or your exercise time. So 
I start though with the basic, um, I would say working in the realm that most people are comfortable with, which is how, how is your body positioned most of the time? You know, I start with, since we are a sedentary culture, this idea that you're standing and sitting a lot of the time, right? You're sitting in your office chair, you're sitting in your car, um, you are standing in line at the grocery store or at the bank. And so we take this amount of time um, and we start to look at how, what is the form, right? We're used to thinking about form for that bout of exercise or that bout of therapy, but we don't really apply that same concept of form to our life. So that's probably where I start. How do you sit? Is Are you sitting in a way that is reinforcing these aspects of your physical experience that you are not okay with? Or could you be sitting in a way that would get you closer to your to your goals, whether they're your physical experience or you could say that you're there, your health goals um, or whatnot. And we just start with that, that basic alignment in the most basic sense of, of a positional makeover. And there's sitting better. And then there's this other idea of like, have you considered sitting less? And that might not mean exercise more yet. It could be do you have a standing workstation? Okay, yes or no. How can we get you one? So like, this is a, a lifestyle component that I would still put into this idea of, of alignment, meaning how is your body positioned the bulk of the day? And then we start to look at, okay, but you have a standing desk. How are you standing? Um, I would look at things like, or have them look at, what kind of shoes are you standing around in? What are the, geomet like the geometrical realities <clears throat> of those shoes? and the organization of your body. And then, then maybe we would go to, well, what, what's a non-exercise most people are doing most of the time? It's going to be walking, right? Walking from point A to point B. Non-exercise bouts of walking, but walking nonetheless. You get up. You are walking from your bed to the kitchen. So even if you're not an exerciser at all, almost everyone is still walking minimally from point A to point B. How can we play with that time? What does your form look like during that time? And then what happens is you begin to develop an awareness of how you occupy space and um, how you are creating your physical reality by how you're moving. And you might, if you never thought about how you were sitting, you might not have thought about how much you were sitting. And in through this process of quantifying, which is really what I think of assessment is, an assessment is quantifying uh, position initially, a total movement. And then you could look at, I think uh, maybe people listening to the show are used to doing that for the bout of exercise. I do it for your whole life, like for the whole day. Like just think about your position and the reps. How many sitting reps did you do today? Oh, you did 12 hours of sitting reps. Excellent. So the physical reality that you're having is relating just as much to that as the number of squats you did or curls you did or meters you ran during that bout of exercise. So broadening, um, I try to broaden one's own perception of what movement is and how to quantify it during that period of assessment. So it sounds like your movement assessment is really a, a team approach where it's not just you observing things. It's a lot of communication and uh, questions and problem solving. Yeah. Right and I think what's happened in, th 
because we come from, we come in, we're in a therapy model. You know, our culture has a therapy model. People are kind of conditioned to be fixed by other people, right? That, that you, that the trainer, me, the trainer or the, you know, quote, so-called movement expert, like that we have the answers and that our job is to dispense exercises and observations like pills that the person is supposed to take, which creates an, an issue where the receiver is never actually learning about themselves, that their ability to get better or move better is always, it has an extrinsic to them component. And therefore, the, it, it kind of reinforces the idea that they themselves don't have what it takes. They don't have the knowledge they don't have the know-how. They don't have the pills. They don't have all the exercises. They don't have that anymore. And so I've done that for years. I mean, I spent, I've been doing this for oh, 22 years. I think I just calculated the other day. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I've, I've worked in that model for a very long time and have seen almost zero improvements in the total number of people attracted to that model, meaning despite the millions, if not billions of dollars on, on research going to the tools that you and I and maybe many people listening use to dispense, like we've got a ton of tools to dispense, but we're not really attracting more people to the therapy of exercise, if you will. It's like the people who are attracted to it or who are coming to it, they're not increasing in number despite the evidence that movement will make you better. So that's where I began, I think about seven or eight years to go, okay, there's a bigger, there's a bigger issue going on here. What is it? And so that's been an interest of mine um, research wise and, and looking at what, what that actually is. Um, And through that, I have found that changing my assessment strategy or like to try to step outside of the entire exercise model overall has been very helpful. And, and thus, if you're going to come to me for an assessment and, you know, that's, that's what people reading my books or, you know, read, they're, they're learning how to assess themselves. Like I'm trying to teach people the tools of like how to quantify their own movement, because what I see is irrelevant. It's what you see. It's what you see if you were to make a change outside of you being in the same room with me, right? Because the feasibility of you getting to work with your trainer, the amount of time that you need to, to really transition away from being an exerciser to a mover, to like, to get this copious amount of movement that we both need and many want, we're going to have to change the way that those assessments or movement quantification is done. So yeah, that has become a huge part where it's like, what do you see? What do you quantify? I'll help you through that process because I, I have a set of tools and an understanding of movement, but I'm more interested in teaching other people how to see and evaluate uh, and change their movement at this stage. Cause I think it's going to end up being more impactful to the number of people um, and to the ability for that person to do more with those tools or that information. What would be your big advice? And, and you may have just said this, but I, I want to kind of reiterate the, the points that you just said. What would be your big advice for coaches and trainers that are listening, that are working with their clients to better help them understand uh, what's going on from a movement standpoint, to, to better assess movement, I should say? Well, I, I just, yeah, I think that, if we could expand our own understanding of movement outside of that 
period of exercise, that would be helpful to be able to show someone that, okay, so to go back maybe to what I was saying before is we haven't attracted, I wouldn't say a lot of more people towards exercise or, or to say it another way, we spend a lot of time fidgeting around, whether as coaches or trainers or as exercisers, trying to fidget around to find the best, like what is the best program in that <laughs> 60 minutes or 90 minutes? I mean, the amount of dollars and hours reading books and reading the internet and reading through research, trying to figure out like, you know, should I stretch? Is it plyometrics? Do I need cardio? I don't, oh, I only need eight minutes. Should I not be, I should whole body stuff, you know, weights, bars. Okay, no, wait, I'm supposed to be using my body weight, right? So we've, we've spent a ton of time trying to fidget with perfecting that 60 to 90 minute bout that happens three to six times a week, failing to recognize the, the tremendous body, if you will, of time around that where we have not began to move at all. <laughs> yeah. So, so like we're playing with 4% of our day, trying to perfect it, hoping that we can fix this physical structure to do not only the performance, but also have the aesthetics to also have the sustainability, you know, to do the other things in our lives. Um, but we're only, we're, we've limited ourselves to this exercise bout because we don't understand that movement is not exercise. We've, in, we've linked them in our minds culturally. So I think that if everyone could, especially if you're a movement instructor or an exercise instructor, if you could expand your own understanding, you would be able to dispense information about how to move the other 96% of the time. So we're talking radical change potential here, sure. right? You know, you're, you're, a, you're able to guide your own clients um, through evaluating not only, don't only tinker with that little bit of time, tinker with your life for movement's sake. And, and, and it's radical. It's yeah. really radical. Yeah. So it's really going big picture and moving way, way beyond the exercise training part as you mentioned, and I know you, you did just share that, but I wanted you to kind of restate that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, again, that the big picture concept of really taking a, a, a hard look, I guess, a big look at what is movement. So actually along those lines, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked a couple of guests in, in some different formats, but how do you define good movement? Oh man, that's a hard hitting question. <laughs> well, so I use alignment and I think if you're familiar with or listeners are familiar with the alignment of a car, you know, you get we, we use alignment uh, about the body. But alignment is a term like if you're getting the if you're getting your car's alignment adjusted, what are you doing? You are not just getting your tires <laughs> put on so they point straight ahead. Right. What's happening is you are you are um, figuring out how the orientation of the parts of the car, uh, and I don't know very much about cars, so I'm just kind of making up the part, but like your, your, your tires, um, the parts of the tires hook into, you've got the struts of the car. There's, there's that level of alignment, right? Cause you're, you can tell when your alignment of your car is off and what is, what is the consequence of that happening? It's, um, premature wear and tear, non-uniform wear and tear, where there becomes a, a, one particular spot uh, mechanically, right? When you when you have non um, 
uniform, repetitive use over a long period of time, you you wear out locations, certain locations. And then, of course, it only takes one worn out location to bring the entire structure down where the entire structure is now immobile. But it's not only that when you're getting your car uh, alignment done, they are considering how fast or slow you drive, the terrain over which you drive the the components, the the structural components of the rest of the car. It's this very big picture of how you're going to drive your body over a long period of time. So the best movement is one, the movement, it's it's something personal for you to decide for yourself what your best movement is. Because I think that we can't deny the elements of of joy and and personal contribution of skill. And so there are people who would gladly, I would say, sacrifice parts of their body in the future to be able to execute what they want to do now. But then similarly, I think there are people who are sacrificing parts of their body to do the thing that they are doing right now because they're not aware that they are actually sacrificing future movement. So I think the best movement is the movement that you are choosing, considering as many variables as possible, and that you're considering maybe the larger impact of of how movement kind of aligns with your personal mission statement with how you want to execute your life, right? That's a that's like a again, it's a very big picture, but it's it's a way of moving that is nourishing as many parts of your body as possible, as many aspects of your life as possible. Like in order to get movement, are we having to take away from other elements of our life that we wish we could have more time for, but in order to get your movement on, you've got to decrease your family time or your work time or your community time. So I think that there's a holistic way of looking at movement. So it's not only enriching your physical body, it's enriching your um, home life. It's enriching your local community and it's enriching, you know, the planet overall. Like that's, that is my, that is my understanding of what aligned movement is. So just to maybe recap that a little bit, at least my interpretation anyway, is with alignment, it starts with alignment and then it's context specific. So it will depend on what the movement is for the individual um, but it should also translate into a, a bigger picture, a holistic approach to to life, I, I think. It, that's kind of what I took out of what you were saying there, and you said a lot. <laughs> I know. Well, and I think that alignment starts on a physiological level. I mean, if I'm just talking about the nuts and bolts yeah. of movement, you can't only move some of your parts if you want more than those parts to work, meaning movement that there is this uh, physiologically, there's a, there's a balance of movement. And that's what, that's the level at which a lot of us are, are working most. And it's the level that I started out working and it's a level where I still am probably doing the greatest amount of work, which is, wow, when you stand, you have a tendency to stand only on one leg, but not on the other leg. And that habit is creating a, a, a distribution of weight of load and a, is creating a particular physical adaptation that will have a particular set of consequences. So let's try to use our body a little bit more evenly. And certainly we do that when we're, you know, if you're training someone a set of exercises, you're paying attention to 
you know, that people are holding this equal amount of weights in both hands, that their angles are matching on the right and left side, that they're not using momentum more on one side. Like that's, you, we already have all of these concepts, I would say, concreted. We're just not used to expanding them outside of the rep or the exercise. So then you can look at, okay, you have stance habits. We're going to adjust those a little bit. Um, but then you start looking at, oh, if you want to go larger, then you could say that same idea of you have a way of moving that's you're always using the uh, same, you always run exactly the same route. All right. So you can start running and it's always, let's say, a cemented route. And then you're going to say, you need to add some hills, right? We start this, it's an idea of cross training. And the whole idea of cross training is simply to get you to use more parts of your body differently because that it's that well-balanced head to toe use that results in a, a, a strong, sustainable structure. Now it's arguable whether or not that would increase your particular performance at a particular of a particular event. And so that's why I said aligned or good exercise has a lot to do with why you're using exercise in the first place, because to do really well in a particular sport or a particular event sometimes requires the sacrificing of the whole, meaning your whole body, your whole life will not be better for it. But maybe that's not your interest. Maybe your interest is just being really good at a particular sport. So I think that's where it gets complicated when we use terms like good or bad, because I think it's a choice that everyone is, is constantly making. But as a trainer, um, you, I think, need to get well-versed or as a therapist, well-versed on all the different ways that or reasons someone would be pursuing your services and also to help your clients recognize when they're pursuing a goal that that might not actually be their ultimate goal. They just don't know any other goals exist, right? So that's where that education or discussion of movement in a broader context, I think is helpful because I think we can help people get to their goals better if we can help them figure out what they are. And I'm just thinking here, Katie, you said that you, you really like to have people assess where they are uh, as far as what they're doing outside of the exercise training and, and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and kind of assess their own movement and the things that they're doing for hours and hours each day. Now, you've written many books, eight books, I believe. Katie, is that right? <laughs> uh, I, that feels like the right number. I don't <laughs> yeah, okay. Know. All right. So where people that are listening to this, what book would they start with if they haven't seen your work? Where would they start to uh, really understand what you're talking about and to start with this self-assessment? I think that movement professionals would be best served by Move Your DNA. Okay. Because I think that that, just in reading that book, it broadens, you'll have, I think, a, a pretty robust understanding of the difference between exercise and movement. And there's so many, you know, it's just this idea of, uh, how sedentary we how sedentary we are in terms of or repetitive. The book uses a lot of um, terminology like casting, uh, like how, how like what's how often do you sit? <clears throat> the frequency of your sitting that's a good assessment, and then also um, how much do you sit in one exact position? Do you ever sit on the ground? You know, and and then there's a lot of there's some cross cultural information. Like here's how a lot of other people and other 
places in the world take their rest and there's not a chair in sight? And, and what does that mean? And how does movement work on the cellular level? I think once we have that, just having those few uh, tools of, of knowledge, I think would allow anyone to go, Oh, I see how I can help my clients better. Got it. So standing desks, uh, that's something that is really growing now. People are becoming more aware of, of the benefits of standing desks, but it's not just about that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, what, what is it really about with, with a standing desk? And, and you kind of just started to, to mention that there. Well, and right. And that's in move your DNA as well, which is, you know, it was the sitting kills headlines of, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago. And then it's like, oh, let's, we got to get out of the chair. Sitting kills, you know, <laughs> may, may my, may my butt never touch a chair again. You know, so then we, not everyone, but there was, there's definitely been a trend, which I, which I think is great towards standing desks. But what happens is the, the research into sitting it's not delineating between sitting and stillness, meaning is there something in the geometry of sitting um, or or is it simply the copious amounts of stillness that happens when you're in a chair? Um, and given kind of how we understand uh, how movement works and and various things mechanically, clearly stillness of a different posture isn't getting us as far away from the risk factors of sitting and stillness as we'd like to think. And so, um, I, you know, acknowledging that people still need to work at this point and that usually work or production being productive requires, um, what will, what we think of as an unmoving bout, you know, you can't leave your computer, you can't leave your office. So then this is where it helps to have this broader idea of movement, because if you're at work, you can't exercise unless you get a treadmill desk or a bicycle desk, which is not feasible for most people. So if you can understand the, how movement works on a cellular level, then you would see like, oh, I can see how creating maybe though a little bit more dynamic workspace, which is my answer to the standing workspace is like, you need a dynamic workspace. You need to be able to sit a little, stand a little. You need to, when you're standing, have something underneath your feet to be, you know, fidgeting or, or moving around that movement can be very subtle. We can be doing it all of the time. If we can think outside of the exercise box, then you learn how to move so much more while continuing to be productive. So I think that um, if you asked most of your clients, everyone listening, what is the largest barrier to getting the amount of physical activity you want? I would bet that most people would list work as number one. Sure. Maybe family is two. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how, how do we infuse movement into our work and our family lives? That's the question, right? That's the question to answer. And it's by, it's by figuring out how to not just swap one static position for another, but to infuse movement back in, in all of these, in all of these situations with the standing work desk being one of them. What would be your, your very simple advice for someone that is desk bound, let's say for seven to eight hours every day? Um, what can they do? What's something simple and easy they can do to um, infuse the, the things that you're talking about? Um, I have like a th three steps. First step is sit differently, right? That's the easiest, meaning you can adjust your sitting 
posture and that's a different movement. Those are different loads. Second one is, uh, so it's sit better, sit differently, sit less. If you could just always be cycling through those, then even if you feel trapped in your chair, there's nothing to say that you can't sit with your legs crossed or cross one ankle over the knee and then cross the other ankle over the other knee, which look suspiciously like exercises that you would normally go to like a stretching class or your trainer would have you do after you've done some sort of workout. But we, we're trapped mostly mentally. We, we are trapped in our minds where we have put all of our movement into that period of time when you have different clothes on and you're in a different space that's playing a particular type of music and you had to pay money to go there and and you have a trainer or you're following some sort of program on a piece of paper like that. We we have bound our exercise. We've walled it off in our mind or without those parameters being around the outside of it. You can duplicate so many of the things that you're doing during your bout of exercise right there in your office and no one would even know, but it's your mind keeping you from doing it, right? It's not the right place. It's not the right time. It doesn't have value if I don't do it for 60 solid minutes, if I'm not sweating. You know, you don't see a value of stretching your piriformis as you're firing off an email because no one told you that it had value. (laughs) Right. So I'm telling you it has value. It has tremendous value and it has the potential for being more valuable than the bout of exercise. That's awesome. I love the uh, three-step approach there. Sit better, sit different, sit less. Uh, very simple, very actionable. And I think people can, can take that away for sure. Speaking along those lines, I wonder if you could talk about what your lifestyle looks like at home, your home environment and what your day-to-day looks like from a movement standpoint? Well, what I'm probably most known for, and <laughs> and you can look on my web, like I, I give a tour of my house on yeah. my website, and there's also a page of a day in my life, right? So you could you can get a visual. If you're a visual person, you can check that out. I got rid of the furniture in my house, specifically the couches and chairs. There's, there's no chairs <laughs> in my house. <laughs> Now, as radical as that seems, I always like to point out that, you know, the bulk of the world doesn't have those things either, that it's a very, it's the exercising culture that has them. The culture that does the most, spends the most, thinks the most about exercise is also the culture that moves the least, just if you want to wrap that around, (laughs) wrap, you know, put that in your mind for a second. So the reason I did that was, of course, the same reason that I don't have junk food in my in my house. It's because if it's there, it's, it's like the junk, it's junk food movement. Plopping down into your couch at the end of the day is the equivalent to just eating a simple sugar. It's a, it's a, an easy way for your body to expend almost no energy to, to get in the short term what it needs, which is a burst of energy or a little bit of support. So the couch is supporting me so that my muscles don't have to, right? If you've outsourced your physical labor to an inanimate object. That's what furniture is. So once I realized that, and I realized it, oh, probably about, uh, my son is almost six, and I got rid of it uh, mid-pregnancy, I think. Um, so about six years. Once I didn't have that, I still, I still am taking rest. I still need to sit on the floor, right? I'm still, you know, watching Netflix just like everyone else or working on my laptop like everyone else, only without the ability to so easily outsource, I found myself 
getting all the way down and up to the floor. A motion, a distance never traversed outside of an exercise session. Does anyone notice that? This is another self-evaluation. How often do you, does your body physically traverse the distance between your pelvis and your feet unless you're doing it for exercise, right? So you're going to be looking at less than 4% of your life. You have physically carried your weight from point A being your pelvic height to point B, which is the ground. Almost never. It's bizarre to our bodies. And then yet we've got all this therapeutic, but like people need to start squatting. You know, we need to do this as an exercise. So it's like, we need to do it as an exercise because we don't do it in our regular life. And so as I found myself squatting 200 times a day, not for exercise, but because I needed to get to the floor and get back up for functional non-exercise reasons, I was reaping the physical benefits and I didn't need to parse out any more exercise time. Like slowly, my movement time just started ramping and ramping and ramping as I removed uh, conveniences. My, as I was sitting cross-legged on the floor, straight-legged out to the side, legs to one side, legs to the other side in a V-sit, I was naturally duplicating the poses that I would normally have gone to an exercise class for. Someone would have said, oh, you have to stretch your adductors. You need to keep your knees mobilized. So you need to stretch your waist. You need to do this. And so I'm given this list that I have to cram into an exercise hour or I just got rid of my couch and floor and it became a part of my life. My habitat was facilitating the movement for me, if you will. The habitat is my trainer, right? Like nature is my, is my natural prompter. So do you find that you, do you ever do any extra, uh, quotes, mobility work or you don't need to at this point? Um, I, I would say that I'm as mobile right now as I was when I used to teach maybe two to three hours of mobilizing classes a week. That all being said, I still have, I mean, as drastic as my life might seem to others, I, I mean, I wrote eight books in the last two and a half years. Like I, I am not fully embracing movement to the, to the degree that I would even like to. So I still do additional um, mobilizing activities um, only I wouldn't, I wouldn't like go out for about of an hour of mobilizing, but I would notice, like I've noticed, like the body falls into a repetitious habit, like just, it falls into its habit so easily. And I noticed that through my floor sitting, I tended to be using the same two or three positions. They were the ones that were easiest for me. So how I think about it is I'm consciously, when I catch myself, you know, it's very easy for me to sit um, with my knees bent tucked underneath me straight, which is hard for some people at first because their feet or their quads are so stiff. It used to be hard for me, but it's not hard for me anymore. Right. What is hard for me would be tucking my toes under and and really stretching out the forefoot and my toes. So when I catch myself sitting in a comfortable floor position, I will make a conscious decision to sit differently. And that is mobilizing behavior. That's exercise. I'm doing it for the purpose of trying to... Um, improve my mobility to reap the physical benefits. If I, I can sit with my legs to the left much more easily than I can with them to the right. So I will, oh, when I catch myself, I will flip my legs over to the other side and really consciously be thinking in the same way I would if I was doing a mobilizing session. So I would say, yes, I'm still conscious and consciously adding 
mobilizing activities to my life. I still have, I use a half dome, right? My house is still flat and level. I don't get the grade or the terrain that I desire. So I'm constantly adding exercises into my lifestyle. But at the same time, I'm also trying to figure out ways to get more uh, non-exercise movement to decrease my dependency on that exercise behavior. Katie, do you use any exercise tools at all? I've got, <laughs> I'm just looking right at my, cause yeah. I'm where I'm recording this. I'm sitting on a BOSU, right? So I, I have a BOSU because I can't get the variance that I need still being as productive as I am right now. So I have a BOSU that I'm sitting on. I see a yoga strap. I see a half dome. I have yoga tune-up balls. I have a bunch of balls with, with nubs all over them. I have a yoga block over there. I have a half foam roller and a full foam roller. So yes, that's just a list. What's at my feet right now? How do you like to approach strength? Um, I, I approach I approach my strength through play. So um, I have a four and a quarter year old and an almost <laughs> six year old, she would say. Oh, yeah. And we for we we forego strollers. We use no strollers with our children. That was the ultimate. I mean, I've done a lot of strength training and bodybuilding in my day, yeah. um, and I've never been stronger than I am right now because if you, I, you know, like I said, I do, you know, four to five miles of walking for my errands. I'm also a parent, so leaving my children is not an option for me a lot of the time. So there would be times where I would be not only walking, you know, the two miles to the grocery store and carrying the groceries back, I'd also be carrying an anywhere from an eight to a 30 pound year old, right. or, you know, like it's a big deal. Yeah, and absolutely. the other it's, it's huge. <laughs> and, you know, and you're out with your kids and we're at parks. I don't sit, I don't sit on my phone while watching my kids play. I'm going across the monkey bars. Um, I, I was at, I just posted a picture of this on my Instagram so I engage in absolutely no strength training behavior outside of my regular life, gardening, hoeing, climbing trees, and right, then right. parenting, right? Which yeah. is again, the, it's like the strength training workout that never ends because it's like, you don't get to be like, <laughs> right. yeah, you know yeah. what? The song's over. I'm going to be done with my reps. Yeah. It's like, wow, I'm two miles from my house and I have a 30 and a 50 pound yeah. kid and we're going to have to do whatever it takes. And it's going to take me two hours to get home constantly carrying different versions squat. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. But the other day at the park, I was hanging from a bar, a high bar with, I wanted to see how much I could add. I've seen this exercise before, right? People will, will hook plates in a chain around their waist to see how many pull-ups they could do. And they're adding plates to see what it is. Yeah, well, yeah. I haven't stepped away from my family to be able to do that. I say, all right, you 30 pound year old, you have to hang on my back as I'm hanging from the bar. And I kept trying different kids of different weights. <laughs> I got the 30 pound. Let me try the 50 pound. Let me try the 80 pound kid. And now granted, these aren't even my kids. I'm just grabbing kids at the oh, park. Wow. Wow. I made my husband, my 170 pound husband get on my back and I could hang Oh wow, That's with him on me incredible. doing no strength training program at all. And it was like, I have real strength and, yeah. and I'm not, and I'm going about it in 
in a more of a permaculture way. And if people aren't used, used to that term, it's a, it's a way of farming where you're extracting the thing that you want, the strength, but you're going about it in a little bit more of a nature-based way. How did, how did nature get us? How, how were we strong in a natural way before we had kind of this modern civilization thing going on? So it's this permaculture approach to strength. And I was blown away because I had never, I had never tried to be able to do this, but my body through doing kind of low intensity, medium, all day movement, very rarely um, concentrated bouts of high intensity, I was still able to achieve what I think others would think of as a, as something that you could only get through high volume or, or high intensity specific training. So I, that's why I'm self-experimenting. I'm, I'm trying to see, can I have the, the strength and the physique that, that is culturally only perceived to be brought about through one avenue? Is there a way to get it where you can hang out with your family and play and be, and not necessarily have, you know, the exercise mindset? Because I don't think that works for everyone. And I think what our data is telling us through about attrition um, is that this idea of exercise really works for the exercisers already. It doesn't work for the people outside of that culture. And I'm really trying to make an inclusive movement culture. And I think that this understanding of movement is key. Wow. Well, it sounds like what, what you're doing is working. (laughs) So, and I totally get the thing with the kids, by the way, I have a 10 year old and the other one, um, she'll be seven very soon. And I, you know, I do the same type of things, you know, when we go to the park, you know, I, I engage in, in playing with them and uh, you know, I, I lift them a lot, both of them actually, and we just have a good time. So I, I understand actually what you're saying about the strength with your kids. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is fantastic. And it sounds like it's, again, it's working. You've had the experience in strength training and as a bodybuilder, you mentioned. No, I just, you know, yeah. in my, I went, you know, I'm, I'm a biomechanist and that comes from a department of kinesiology. So I've played around with pretty much every yeah. type of exerciser you can be you know, through my undergraduate and graduate, that's all we did. Like I, like I just, (laughs) I grew up in a gym and I adore it. I just, I think there is broader ways and, and, and there are ways that I think that there are ways that, um, fitness culture and movement culture can kind of merge and grow to do what everyone really wants to do. I mean, if you're an exerciser, you love it. You want more people to be attracted to it. You want to be able to support yourself and sustain yourself, doing the thing that you love and teaching the thing that you love. And, you know, just that idea of, you know, the idea that you could teach a family movement class in a park where people don't have to get daycare and leave their family, you know, could it, can it be more inclusive for, for all of the ships in the Harbor to, to lift, you know what I mean? Like it's the tide has got to lift us all. And I think that movement, the, the more we think about movement as being, a human, uh, non-fitness only based activity. Will we see that happen? So let's shift, uh, to a different topic actually, cause I know we're, uh, winding down the, the, uh, interview session here, but your books, again, you've written, you know, like eight books here. What's the book that you're most proud of? Oh, they're like my children. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. Oh, I, well, you know, my personality, my personality type is it's the next book that I'll be most proud of. I, yeah. I feel like I'm very proud of move your DNA and then, but movement matters, movement matters, which is my, the book 
before my last book. That's a book that talks about movement in an entirely different context than physiology. It's a it's the first book and it might even be, you know, really the first time where where movement is thought of as um an an element to sociological and environmental maybe even political issues like it, it makes movement beyond physiological and that's the book that had the greatest impact on me and I wrote it it was like as I wrote it I actually was transformed through the process of writing it so wow. so <laughs> it's 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 a toss-up between move your DNA and movement matters so along those lines and I want to ask you about this I'm I'm reading movement matters right now and you reference the science. You love the science. I can tell that mm. in, in your writing. How do you stay current with the science? <laughs> do, you, do you read a study every day? What, what is your best practice for staying up to date with the research? And I know there's a lot of kind of science nerds that listen to my show. <laughs> um, you know, I love the science myself. So what's your secret to staying on top of, of the science? Uh, being a speed reader is... is uh, is a secret. I mean, I probably read <sighs> on most work days, you know, which would be a standard five days. I'm reading anywhere from 10 to 20 research articles a day. Wow. Um, keeping in mind that I read outside of what is traditionally my field. Um, and I don't print off, you know, articles that I think I should read as much as I'm always working, you know, keep in mind that this is my job. Understanding the science of movement is, is my job more so than teaching people exercise. So if you're like going, Oh my gosh, like it, it's my job to understand movement. Right. Um, I think of a problem or, um, or some aspect of something that I'm working on and in looking for, have other people looked at this? What's the current consensus on that? Like, that's how I'm getting the papers that I'm reading on. And also, you know, there's so much in the media always coming out about movement. If you are in the plugged into the right channels and, and in movement on the level that I'm talking about, you know, there's so much research coming out on physical daily activity. If you follow the health columns of all, you know, the major publications, you'll see that they're constantly writing up new findings in health. I very rarely read the articles. I just go straight to the research article where I I will read that. And then it's like a rabbit hole with me. So it's, it's, it's mostly that, that keeps me informed. And then I, you know, what I do, I'm I have a podcast. I'm, I'm currently, um, I'm always, you know, working on some sort of writing activity or working on right now I'm working on actual um, research for different theories on movement. And so it just, it just, just sucks you in. <laughs> so yeah, right, right. so it's just through reading. It's really through reading. I don't know any other way to stay informed on the research without reading it. Now, when you say you read the research papers, do you mean the the full research paper or are you talking about the abstract? No, I don't. You can't read an abstract of <laughs> exactly. the paper. You right. can't. And I think a lot yeah. of people do and you yeah. can't, you, that is a practice that really has to, that it just you can't you can't you can't read an abstract in lieu of the paper and and use it at, you know for no, anything. No. The problem is those papers are expensive, um, which is you know an argument for open science type stuff. So I, I pick and choose what I pay for, and then I have lots of different subversive ways of getting, getting the papers sure. that I want to read without paying for them. So you do have an upcoming book uh, coming out 
in the next couple of weeks, I believe, which is a uh, dynamic aging. Tell us mm. a little bit about that one. Dynamic aging is a book. It's like, um, so there, there's movement matters, which was this reframing movement. And then I do, I have a series of books, which I think of as shoot offs off of movement matters, dynamic aging being one of those, which is, um, approaching this. I think that there's this, a cultural construct that we have that movement is something that just dies off as we get older. Naturally that older people are just supposed to stop moving as much as they did in their 20s and 30s, despite evidence that other cultures that don't have that luxury, that doesn't happen. In fact, they might actually move more in their 60s than they did in their 20s um, and more vigorously. This, it's a book setting that down on the table. Look, one of the reasons your body is feeling stiff and immobile and weak is not because it is of a particular age. It is because you have had sedentary habits for multiple decades. It's just a basic physiological principle of, you know, use it or lose it. Um, and then it, and so that's, it's one thing if I say it, I'm almost 41. So it's like, okay, Katie, I know we've heard you say that before. So there were four women, you know, I had a clinic when I was in, um, California for 10 years where people were really with me for a long time transitioning their bodies from being a sedentary type body to being a very dynamic body capable and engaging in a movement rich life. And there were the, there was a large group of people that all came at the same time, but there were these four women who really, I mean, they came every day. Sometimes they came two or three times a day and they all started in their late sixties almost 70. And now they are all, this is 10 years later, they are all late seventies and eighties. And they are telling their stories throughout the book, which is, you know, they started with their assessment of, you know, Katie talked about how we were standing in line and she pulled my hips back to this place and told me that I needed to get rid of these shoes with the heel on it. And I was like, you're ridiculous. This is so uncomfortable. I can't do this. I'm too old. And that same woman now, she's hanging from trees and she has hiked some barefoot almost all of the national parks. That's what she's working through. And she did, you know, 25% of them in her 77th and 78th year. And and they and are crossing logs over rushing rivers in their bare feet, where they all had and were seeking treatment for a decade-long plantar fasciitis. They had, they were told that they needed pelvic organ prolapse slings and ACL repairs and like all of these things that they never got. And this is 10 years later and this is their experience. So I think that, you know, it's one thing if I say it, it's different when four people who've walked the walk have done it. So I wrote it really as a book for people who are, I think I geared it maybe to like over 50. It's just this idea that you can start moving more and you start with the little things like here's some correctives for your hips so that you're able to walk with more confidence. Um, exercises targeting driving, targeting, um, you know, muscles very rarely used in our culture and even less so. And then there's just lists and lists of non-exercise types of movement to start engaging in and why you can't make your house a fall free zone, you know, by removing all of the debris and obstacles to the point where you can no longer negotiate anything safely. That that's a very dangerous 
way to minimize risk, you know, like how to engage in safe falling, you know, like just, just that it's just, it's just the same message that I'm always giving, which is move more and move more of you. Here's how to do that. And here's how to do that when you're at this particular stage in your life. Now, where do you recommend people go to get your books? I'm pretty sure they're available in all the major uh, bookstores and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly walking to your local bookstore <laughs> is my number one recommendation. You know, call first nice. and then, or actually no, walk down, see if they have it. If they don't ask for it and then just walk back in a few days when it's there. Yep. Um, and then of course you can get them on all online retailers as well. Where do you want people to go to find you, learn more, connect all that kind of stuff? Uh, nutritiousmovement.com is a website and that's a good portal really if you know I think where you're going to connect with me is where you connect best if it's through the written word then books are great I wrote a blog for 10 years and there's hundreds of articles up there where you can read if you if you're a visual handheld kind of person Instagram is a really great way to watch a, a movement based life in action um podcast like if you're a listener or audiobooks almost my books are on audible too, so that you can walk and listen to them at the same time. Like there's so many different ways I've tried to make it accessible for anyone. platforms. Yep. Absolutely. Two more quick questions and we're going to wrap up. So if, if you had to say what would be the most valuable, I was going to ask you the most valuable exercise, but I'm scratching Mm. the word exercise and, and I'm going to replace that with movement for most people. What's the most valuable movement for most people? I think walking, um, it's walking. And I think uh, in the future, at least it's certainly how I look at it now. You know how most people like were low fat for a long time. And then they only, only to find out that fat might've been the most vital macronutrient <laughs> to their health that they were missing. Sure. Like uh, I think of walking as a, it's a, it's a macronutrient. It's a, it's a, it's a, a thing that includes many, many nutrients. It's a movement that humans, have done historically, you know, miles and miles a day. And it, you know, we are, we are off so much of it in in terms of how much we could be doing, um, how much we could facilitate our life with that single movement. So if you could play around with your movement and in move your DNA, I explained that by walking, I do not mean like just start logging miles on the pavement that there's so many cat, like movement is a category of other types of movements, which is what makes it like a, a macronutrient that, that walking, walking is it. I love that walking as a macronutrient. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, final question. And, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask here, but, uh, what's one actionable takeaway for the audience that has listened through our entire session here today? sit differently. How often should they change positions? That actually takes me back to what you were talking about with your, your positions at your, your low tables. And I wanted to ask you this, so I'm glad you brought it up. How often do you change positions? Number one, two quick follow-ups here. How often do you change positions? Mm -hmm. And then how do you correct yourself if you find that you are in bad alignment? Does that, does that happen? Oh yeah. Does that happen? Totally. (laughs) Um, So, so here's the thing. I think that you can't change your positions based on how I change my positions, that the skill that's missing is our ability to listen to ourselves and what we need as far as movement goes. So I change my thing, like I'm triggered naturally through discomfort, 
to change my sitting position. And so that everyone could use that really as a marker. Like if you're going to get on the floor tonight, so sitting differently could involve not using your furniture, you know, for tonight when you go home, if you're going to you know plop on the couch and you're going to look after a few minutes and there's going to be a little niggler thought like, oh, I'm sitting on the couch. You would maybe not have ever recognized that you were sitting on the couch until now. And you're going to move to the floor. You're going to find that it's difficult and that that difficulty is the natural personal trainer in you, if you will, that it's time to move differently. So then you're going to switch. So follow your own prompting. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. And then um, as far as, you know, sitting in good alignment versus bad alignment, you can use a little bit of, you know, if, if something's hurting you while you're sitting down on the floor, you can switch. If there's no comfortable way to sit on the floor, then you might need bolster, which would be not, not everyone can sit on the floor as, as easy and as simple as it seems. There's people who the state, the current state of their hips, like their low back, their hips, their knees, and their feet will actually not allow them to remain on the floor without strain. So prop yourself, get pillows down there, get blankets, and then use, you could use comfort in the, in the beginning of going, you know, is my alignment off? It's like, well, are you comfortable? No. Okay. Well then sit in a way that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable and then switch when you feel ready. Excellent. Katie, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to dive deeper into that. I know I had just a last question for you, and I threw two more out there. But uh, thank you so much for, for doing that. And thank you for all the great uh, work and your contributions to the industry. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I know the audience is going to love it. And we really appreciate your time today. Thank, thanks, Scott. I appreciate you doing the podcast. You know, it's like the podcast is a, is a huge contribution to bring information to other people. So I thank you. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that session with Katie Bowman as much as I did. You can find the uh, resources and things that we talked about in the show notes for this episode. You can find that at ardellatraining.com forward slash RT198. Also, you'll find valuable giveaways and be able to stay up to date with the latest happenings and things coming from Ardella Training at ardellatraining.com forward slash join. Thanks for listening this week, guys. And I'll see you again next week here on the Ardella Training Podcast. Take care.